Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. Well, we have come to the grand finale of the Bible. Yes. And the book of Revelation is a grand finale. Yes. It's... um, it's really an amazing book. It is a challenging book. And I think it's challenging for a couple of reasons. One is because people love to talk about Revelation, kind of taking little snippets of it and just trying to mash it up with current events, world news. Past world events as yeah. well. Yeah. And without really having read through the book, um, but the other big thing is that the book of Revelation is really a big remix, if you will, of the Old Testament prophets. And it's a lot tougher to be familiar with all of the, the lengthy Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. But if you know the lingo of the prophets and have kind of a handle on that, then wow, uh, Revelation just starts to make so much more sense because now you're familiar with the imagery. You know kind of the prophetic lingo. You're like, oh, like, he talked about that in the Old Testament. Like, I, I know what generally that means. Instead of just being like, what does this even mean? Like, this is crazy. Yes, I appreciate you pointing that out because when we look at the book of Revelation, we need to read it in a similar way we did some of the other Old Testament prophecies that we looked at. And I'm just looking back over season seven right now and looking at those those episodes where we covered some of that prophetic language. And one of the things that Stephen and I tried to emphasize in those episodes is that we are talking about real places and real times, right? That the, These were specific people that the Old Testament prophets had in mind that they were talking to saying that these things were going to happen to them as a result of their sin or as a result of the sin around them. And we can read Revelation with the same lens. However, we want to kind of look back on the Old Testament and see how those prophecies were used then to help us understand how they're being used in this book now. Mm -hmm. So just know that today we might be talking in, in broad strokes about some Old Testament things, and you can go back and you can read those to help you understand Revelation better. Yes. Uh, I really think Revelation makes way more sense after you've done a study of probably, I would say, like Ezekiel is a big one, mm-hmm. um, Daniel yep. is a big one, and Zechariah. May- maybe Zechariah, yeah. Um, and, of course, any of the other prophets sure. will help as well. But there are particularly some imagery some Old Testament-like prophetic stories that come from those prophets that just keep coming back up in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we think about what what is this letter, because sometimes Revelation gets put in its own category. You know, we've been talking about the four Gospels, the, the accounts of Jesus' life. We've talked about the book of Acts, part two to book of Luke. And then we've talked about the letters. So pretty much everything we've been talking about for the last several episodes has been letters to Christians. Uh, Paul, Peter, James, you know, writing to different ones. Um, But now we come to Revelation, and it is written by John. Um, It's actually the only of John's writings that bears his name. Um, The Gospel of John didn't have his name in it. First, second, and third John didn't have his name in it. But in Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that Mm -hmm. are in Asia. And so it's helpful to see that uh, the Revelation to John is a letter 
to seven churches. Now, yes. it is a letter that includes a very long series of visions. Yeah. And um, this is just a total side note, but it is called the Revelation Singular. <laughs> it is made up of multiple visions, but it's one big revelation. Which, yeah. by the way, the other word that you'll hear used for this is the apocalypse of John, which when people hear apocalypse, they think, it's the end of the world, it's the apocalypse. But literally, the word apocalypse is a Greek word that just means to reveal something. Yes. The book of Revelation is meant to not mystify us, but give us something that is now revealed. Like, oh, that's good. That's helpful to know. And it is in Old Testament prophetic terminology that can be mystifying to us, but the purpose of the book is not to conceal, but to reveal. That's why it's called a revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here in uh, the book of Revelation, John is mentioned, like Stephen said in verse 4, but he's really not the main character of the book. Uh, like Stephen said, things are being revealed to him, and he's writing them down so that these churches can understand. But just like we did last week, we'll just talk a little bit about John the Apostle's background. He was a fisherman by trade, uh, and he was one of the sons of thunder that Jesus gave that fun little nickname that we talked about in last week's episode. And he gets to see Jesus when Jesus walked the earth and then when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But now he gets to see Jesus in a more beautiful way as Jesus is in heaven. And he's sitting there on his glorious throne. And in some ways a more terrifying way when he sees Jesus. And I mean, he was the guy like reclining on Jesus' you know, chest at the Last Supper. But when he sees Jesus in the vision, in his glorified way he falls down like a dead man and so it's really interesting to think about all the ways that john encountered jesus um, and here this encounter is a powerful one but of course jesus picks him up says don't be afraid you know and comforts him and john is actually like the old testament prophets going to be fairly confused at different <laughs> points in this vision like yeah. i'm seeing this and i'm writing it down but i do not know what this means which is comforting to us sometimes yeah. because like well yeah, John, I, I don't understand a lot of this either. Well, at some at some points, John will actually fall down at the feet of the angels, and the angels will tell him, "Get up! Yeah, you know? Don't worship us! Yeah, don't worship We're just us!" Servants like you. So John, he's left asking a lot of questions, like we are, about what he's seeing. And uh, one other thing that's important to note about John is that at this time, when all this is revealed to him, uh, verse nine of chapter one says that John is um, exiled on an island called Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is by himself. And John the Apostle will be, from a historical standpoint, what we know, the last living apostle and will be the only one who doesn't die the traditional martyr's death. All the other apostles, his brother James, for instance, as recorded in Acts 12, was beheaded. Uh, Peter, as tradition and history tells it, was crucified and upside down on a cross. And all the other apostles, it's recorded throughout history how they die. But John the Apostle, he dies alone and in exile. And that, in some ways, I think could be worse than dying a martyr's death. To see all of your friends go on to die, and you're left here. But John still has work to do. He, he's still being involved with the work of the Lord and here this vision is revealed to him to deliver to these seven churches. Mm -hmm. And so it's important we think about these seven churches of Asia um, because these are real churches. Um, these are not just symbols, but they are 
churches, and we know a lot about some of them. We know very little about others of them, but Ephesus is the first one. Um, and we know lots about Ephesus. We can go read First Timothy and learn a lot about what Timothy was doing at Ephesus. We have the letter to the Ephesians. Um, but Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are the seven cities where there are seven churches. And this is a revelation given to John, but he's told to write these things down and send them to the seven churches. This is a message for that generation. And one of the important things to note about the content of Revelation is a lot of times people want to take Revelation and make it all about whatever age they're living in. And this has happened for hundreds of years. You can go back historically and see how people have interpreted Revelation to be about, oh, no, it's about the 1800s. Oh, no, it's about the 1900s. No, it's about the 2000s. You know, and every generation wants it to be about them, which... I know people don't think of it this way. It can end up being kind of a selfish way to view the book. Like, no, no, we live in the days that this is talking about. And it's like, actually, this was written to the seven churches of Asia. Now, I do think that there are some things in Revelation at the end that are going to talk about the distant future. But for the most part, I think that this book was written to strengthen Christians in that time period initially. Mm -hmm. That this didn't have like... All right, you know, Church of Thyatira, this is all a vision, but it's for, like, people in the United States of America, you know, 2,000 years right. from now. Or, as some people have done, they try to take these seven churches and mash them up with certain ages within history and world history. But starting just with this first church in Chapter 2, Ephesus, this was a church we read a lot about in other books of the Bible. This wasn't, like, some just symbolic church that's going to happen down the road or anything like that. No, you read about the three years that Paul spent with the church in Ephesus. You read the book of Ephesians. You read 1 Timothy, where Timothy was in Ephesus. This is a real place. And so some of these other churches, although you know other parts in the New Testament might not record a whole lot about them, like, for instance, Philadelphia, uh, you still see the point that these were real people, real places that the word of the Lord had spread to. Mm-hmm. And something else important to note at the very beginning and the very end of Revelation, the number of times that John is told that these things are going to happen soon. Yes. That they're not for way, way off in the future. And again, I do think there's some things that indicate in the prophecies that they're future. But in um, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place soon for John. <laughs> um, that, again, that was written 2,000 years ago. Um, in verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then when you fast forward to the end of the book, in Revelation 22, the conclusion has multiple references to the nearness of these things. 22 verse 6 uh, these words are trustworthy and true. Um, he sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, I am coming soon. Verse 10 is particularly notable because some of the Old Testament prophets, including Daniel, were told to seal up the words of the book because they're not for now, they're for way in the future. But John is told in Revelation 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Uh, verse 12, uh, I am coming soon. Uh, verse 20, 
uh, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus is kind of the closing words of the book. And so Revelation begins and ends by telling us that this is a message for those seven churches in that generation. Some of these things they were going to face. And that kind of helps us back up a little bit from the book and say, okay, I don't need to just run to the world news in 2020 to, you know, and say, like, oh, what what is Revelation happening right now? No, first see it through the lens of these seven churches 2,000 years ago. And then, if there are some things that are yet future, think about those things. But the primary way I think that helps us make sense of this is to see it through their eyes and to think about that. And so when we think about the purpose of the book Mm -hmm. for those Christians, I think one of the big themes of this book is suffering, persecution. Yes. And then being strong through that. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you look at these seven churches and look at some of the things that the Spirit is saying to them or what Jesus is saying to them, uh, it's super specific. Look at chapter 2, verse 10, when he's talking to the church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Uh, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Mm -hmm. There you go. Pretty obvious. the big messages of the whole book. Right. Exactly. So they are going to be facing persecution and have been facing persecution up until this point. And it's no surprise. The different uh, Roman rulers that have come through at this point, and there's debate on who the current Roman ruler was uh, when this book was written. But regardless of who it specifically was, they were all giving Christians a hard way to go. They were all facing persecution, and that's clear from what the, mm-hmm. what Jesus is saying to them. Yeah. And so this persecution is going to be talked about using a lot of really crazy images, but images that are not so crazy when you've read the Old Testament prophets. Exactly. Judgment is one of the things that the Old Testament prophets talked about all the time. And they would use these word pictures to describe coming judgment. And it would sound like the end of the world sometimes, but it wasn't the end of the world. It was a judgment on a nation. And so when we are familiar with the language of the Old Testament prophets, Revelation is kind of a fitting conclusion to the whole of Scripture because it brings together the prophets of the Old Testament, the story of Israel in the Old Testament. It brings the story of the gospel from the New Testament, the letters to the churches. Um, And it, it talks about the end, about the final victory of God. And so I really think the primary purpose of Revelation is to give hope in in the Lord's victory over all evil, whether that was evil 2,000 years ago or evil now or evil in another few hundred years, you know, however long the Lord allows the Lord, to, the, the earth to keep spinning. The book of Revelation is telling us God wins. No matter how dark it looks, no matter how impossible the victory seems, God wins in the end. So don't give up on God because he is going to triumph over sin and Satan. And so that's really the message of the book. Now, as we get into the book itself, there's a lot going on in uh, the images. Uh, Chapter 1 begins, like we've read snippets of, uh, with with an introduction to the Revelation. Um, It talks about John writing to the seven churches. And John sees Jesus in chapter 1 and falls down on his feet, but he raises him up, gives him courage. And then chapters 2 and 3 walk us through seven little miniature letters to these seven churches. And it's Jesus writing to these seven churches. Mm-hmm. And it helps us to see what kinds of things these churches were going through yeah. 
because some of the visions later in the book are going to have particular, they're going to be particularly helpful for different ones of these churches. Yeah, and it is also cool. There's a lot of things to note in these little letters, but notice that each of them have this angel. uh, And then secondly, it will say something different about Jesus. And so, for instance, in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Uh, For Smyrna, it says, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. So talking about the resurrected Christ. Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. So on your own time, just kind of go through there and see those different names that are, are given to Jesus and also how they correspond to the very thing that Jesus has to say to that specific local church. Yeah, it's really interesting to do a, a deep study on these seven miniature letters and see what things are similar, what things are uh, different, and to see that some of them, almost nothing good is said about them. Some of them, almost nothing bad is said about them, but most of them have a mixture of good and bad. And of course, to think about, well, what if Jesus wrote to the church where I'm at? What would he say? Yes. Is, I think, a question we come away with. And one of the things to note, we've already noted that they would be uh, facing persecution and suffering. But another thing that's mentioned as you read through these is a lot of them have had to deal with successfully or unsuccessfully false teachers and false teaching and false living that's come into the local church. And the reason why it's important to note those two things, the persecution and the false teaching, is because in some of the visions that are going to be revealed later, John is going to see how those two things are dealt with in the very end. And so just so you can note that for your own purposes. Mm -hmm. So the first few chapters don't have a lot of the vision. I mean, John sees Jesus, but the vision really begins in chapter four, Mm -hmm. um, where John is seeing these things pass before him and interacting sometimes with different angels. But chapters 4 and 5 give us the throne room scene of God. That even though John is stuck on an island by himself, the curtain is kind of pulled back for John, and he sees how things really are. It might look like the Christians are losing in the world, himself being one of them, but that God is reigning in heaven, and things are going well (laughs) uh, for the Lord. And so he gets to see God's glory all of the ones who are praising God, these heavenly creatures that are amazing. And again, this is kind of a mashup of like Ezekiel and Isaiah. There are several throne room scenes in the Old Testament that prepare us for this throne room scene in Revelation. But there's an interesting element here in that the lamb is a central part of this throne room scene, that no one can open this scroll except for the lamb who's been slain. Of course, figuring Jesus, what happened to him. And now, as he's opening these seven seals on the scroll, different things are going to start to happen. But again, this is the idea of a scroll with a message. And so as the seals open up, we're getting to see more and more of the message. Um, and so this throne room scene in verse chapters 4 and 5 is going to set up the next chapters. And it's important sometimes that you... One thing that's helpful to do with any book of the Bible, but Revelation in particular, is to read the whole thing Mm -hmm. in a sitting because sometimes we forget what happened before because we get so zeroed in on what does this little detail mean? What does that little detail mean? But sometimes with literature like this, it's really important to see the forest first. You really got to see the whole picture. I've heard it described as like a mosaic, you know, with like all the little pieces that 
if you zoom way in on a mosaic piece of artwork, you're going to be like, what do these weird pieces mean? Uh, they're like jagged and they don't really fit together. And like, what, what's going on? To see a mosaic, what do you have to do? You have to back up and see the whole thing first. And then you can appreciate, once you zoom in, say, oh, I see how the artist put these pieces together here to be the nose or the eye. But I wouldn't even known that's what it was if I hadn't zoomed out and seen, oh, it's a face. It's a person, you know. And so Revelation is very much that way. You've got to zoom out first before uh, zooming way in. And that's that's our tendency with Revelation is to like, what does this angel mean? Or what does this vision mean? We see the whole thing first. So four and five is the throne room scene. Yeah. And then the, the seals start to be broken. And uh, someone recently pointed out to me, again, we're just doing an overview here. If you get a chance to read through those, you kind of see them building and building and building and you can see it kind of in the verse how many verses are given to each seal so you get a couple verses given to the first four uh seals there but then the fifth seal three verses the sixth seal six verses and then in chapter seven there's kind of like this break that happens in between the sixth seal and then the final seventh seal being revealed in chapter eight and as we back up and look at it, this seventh seal, as these trumpets are going to be blown, is seven trumpets that are going to be blown. And it kind of then backs out and tells us what those seven trumpets represent and what they are. And so, again, just you see the need to read the whole thing and then back up and see the picture that's being painted. It's super cool. And with each of these seven seals, it's like different types of judgment that come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one in particular that I want to draw our attention to because it comes up a good bit later in the book is the fifth seal when it's opened. It says in Revelation 6 verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This ties in with the theme of Revelation being persecution, and that those who have been killed, been martyred for the cause of Jesus, are crying out for Jesus to ultimately take vengeance and to defeat his enemies. And he, they realize there's, there's going to be more who are going to die. There's more persecution coming. But in the end, they will be vindicated. They will be glorified because they were faithful unto death. And they will receive the crown of life like we talked about earlier. So this, like Chase said, there's a lot of sevens in Revelation. Seven seals. That gives way after kind of an interlude where we see this glorified mm-hmm. picture of God's people, 144,000 of them. By the way, something to say about the numbers in Revelation. Numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic. We, we live in a culture where numbers are very literal. We love numbers and dates and exact things. In the book of Revelation, and in the Bible in general, numbers are just much more symbolic. This does not literally mean there's going to be 144,000 people in heaven. Um, some people interpret it that way. But if you look at all the other numbers in Revelation, they're very symbolic numbers. And 12 is the number of the people of God in Scripture. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles who are the foundation of God's people in the New Testament. 
So 12 is like God, all of God's people. So 144 is 12 times 12, then times 1,000, mm-hmm. 144,000. This is all of God's people, but it's a symbolic number. So it's helpful to remember that. Uh, seven is a number that means completion, like something that's whole or perfect. Um, and three and a half is half of that. There's going to be a bunch of ways to say three and a half in Revelation, like 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time. Um, all are three and a half, which that's half of completion. And so we could go down a whole rabbit trail on all the numbers in Revelation, but just things like the 144,000 just help us remember, okay, we're reading something figurative here. This is a vision. It's not literal. Um, that's the kind of literature we're reading. And so to take that into account as we uh, are careful with our interpretation. And these 144,000, as they represent God's people, it's ultimately about who they're worshiping and who they're around. And so in verse 16, um, or verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And so the, the lamb is the solution. The lamb is the one being worshiped. And so God's people are kind of, around him as the lamb is in the center of the throne. Mm-hmm. And again, one of the great themes of this book is, yes, God's people are going to suffer. Many of them are going to be killed, but they will be vindicated. They will be glorified mm-hmm. with the lamb in the end. And we see a little snippet of that here. We'll see it more at the end of the book. Um, but uh, one of the other things to note about Revelation as we're walking through it is chapters 4 through 11 are kind of all a big unit. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the images are not sequential chronologically. Um, it's a little bit like, I've heard this analogy used, that when you watch like a football game, it, when a guy scores a touchdown, they don't just show one angle. <laughs> that you, you see it happen, and then they do what? They play it from this angle, and they play it in this angle in slow motion, and then they play it from that angle and that angle. And Revelation is kind of doing that, both with looking back on the victory that Jesus won at the cross but also looking forward to persecution that's going to come and the victory that will be won in over the, that coming persecution in that generation. So as we think about Revelation, it's not all chronological. It often is describing the same victory and defeat, but from a different angle and right. with different imagery. And so that's important to keep in mind as we walk through. So there's the seven seals and in chapter 8, the seventh seal gives way to the seven trumpets. Mm-hmm. Which is more judgment, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. It's more uh, like, for instance, this first trumpet that sounds in verse 7, there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And as you just keep going through the trumpets, you see more and more judgment coming down on the earth on the people that have done wrong to God's people. Mm-hmm. That's right. And there's, a again, a long interlude, <laughs> yeah, almost 10. two chapters, yeah. uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Yeah, and 11, yep. Um, and uh, several interesting connections to the Old Testament with these things about how God's people uh, will, will suffer but then be raised. But uh, the seventh trumpet uh, gives way um, to a new section in, in the book. Uh, chapter 12 begins kind of a new section. Yeah. A new set of characters. It's describing the same basic victory and defeat of, of God's enemies. Um, but now we're introduced to the dragon in chapter 12. Very famous uh, image. 
And the dragon, of course, is Satan. Um, and God's people are pictured as a woman, uh, Israel. Um, you know, she's giving birth. Jesus is being born, and he's rescued. And so, again, some of these things actually have to do with the past, with like the life of Jesus and the victory that he won and his death and resurrection. Um, but the, the dragon, a lot of this section, chapter 12 through 19, is going to have to do with the dragon and his efforts to destroy the people of God and his allies, the different kinds of allies that he has. Because in chapter 13, we're introduced to his first two allies, these two beasts, one from the land, one from the sea. And ultimately, I think these beasts are going to basically come to represent, the first beast is basically persecution, uh, maybe particularly from the government, but persecution in general, trying to get people to give up because their life is hard. And the second beast is kind of false religion. Yeah. Uh, it's trying to get people to worship the first beast. And you'll remember in the seven churches, uh, in the letters that were written to the seven churches, those were the two big things that they were facing, um, were false religion and persecution. So it would make sense that they get the shout out here as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things interesting, again, we come back to symbolism here, is that this is where we get the, the mark of the beast. Um, and that's a famous thing from Revelation. That's at the very end of chapter 13. Uh, where it says, this, let them calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. His number is 666. Um, and that's contrasted, and again, this is where you just have to keep reading, with chapter 14, uh -huh. where the 144,000 are sealed with a different mark. <laughs> they have the name of the lamb and his father's name written on their foreheads. So the mark of the beast is a symbolic thing, not that we have to be scared at the gas pump if we get $6.66. Yeah, that's impossible now, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like barely over a gallon. Um, yeah, signs of the times. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, mark of the beast is for those who serve the beast. It's not like some accidental thing or anything. It's like, no, if your allegiance is given to the beast mm -hmm. who's against God, then there's that for you. And then there's this other mark of the lamb that's given in chapter 14. So again, just helpful to see that these are all symbolic things. Yeah. And people get and bent out of shape over specific numbers. Yeah, and 666, all 666 falls one short of the number seven, right? And so the, the number seven is the, the kind of the idea, the perfect number that we see in the Bible. And so there's nothing spooky about this. Uh, it is purely symbolic, like Stephen is pointing out. Mm -hmm. And so, as we talk about the, the two uh, allies of Satan, um, it gives way to a series of other visions that largely, again, have to do with um, uh, persecution uh, and with judgment on God's enemies, ultimately. There's some real beautiful images of hope sprinkled through here. The Revelation 14, 13 says, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So those images of harvest, which is uh, an image that Jesus often used. Um, there are songs of praise to God. There's another set of seven coming up in 15 and 16. There are seven bowls of wrath. Yeah. Which remind us a lot of the seven seals and seven trumpets. Yes, and specifically the six bowls of wrath that are first given in chapter 16, they directly correspond to the trumpets that were part of the seventh seal in chapter 8. And so you can go back and kind of compare and contrast those. It's really cool to see. Mm -hmm. 
And so it gets us to chapter 17 through 19, which introduces us to the third and final ally of the, of the dragon, Satan, and that is the prostitute, uh, whose name is Babylon. Yeah. And I think this is the idea of just temptation yeah. in general. And as you think about Babylon in biblical history, Babylon represented this great enemy of God's people. And so it carries over into the New Testament as well. And there are other places in the New Testament, actually, where Babylon is referred in this way as well. Yes. Now, I will say, in Revelation 17, you, you get a lot more specific with some world events of the first century. And we're not going to go into the details on this podcast, but there are ways, and there's more than one way to do this, of matching up the seven heads, the seven kings that are talked about with the Caesars that would have been ruling around the time John was writing. And so I think it's helpful to go back sometime and to see some of that and to see, like, hey, this really, I think when John wrote this, the people reading it would be like, oh, yeah, like that's totally what's going on in our world right now. Which is, again, helpful for us to see this was a message for them first and then by extension to us. And so um, there are some things in here that you can match up with world history. But again, we need to be very, very careful before just running to some of those things, before seeing the big picture of what's happening in Revelation. So Revelation 18 and 19 detail the destruction of this ally of Satan. Yeah. She falls and is destroyed. God's people are rejoicing. Yeah, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. So I, I, I love that. You know, She's fallen. The Great One has fallen. Yeah, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only time the word hallelujah comes up in the New Testament. It's oh, used really? a lot in the Old Testament. But um, it comes up here in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Um, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so the end of Revelation 19 uh, comes back to Jesus. He is the central one in this whole book. And he's pictured as a warrior, a rider on a white horse. And all of his people are there with him, defeating. I mean, there's a lot of references to Ezekiel here, um, here at the end. It's really interesting to see how all this ties together. But then Revelation 20, uh, down through most of the end of the book, 22 verse 5, I do think give us a picture of what will be future and final things. Mm -hmm. There is a a thousand years that happens. And again, numbers are symbolic. There is so much debate and different interpretation over the thousand years, the millennium, you know, what that means. Right. And again, as we talk about symbolic numbers, we also have to understand kind of metaphor and also just general exaggeration of Mm -hmm. forever. Like, oh, man. My, my kid the other day, it felt like I had to change her diaper a thousand times. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean I actually had to change her diaper a thousand times. But the idea is it, it, it's a long time. It's a lot. And that is the reign that Christ is going to have. It will be kind of this forever long time idea that's being discussed. Yeah, especially in comparison to some of the other time periods we've seen in Revelation. Exactly. But the final thing is that it's going to be a limited time. And at the end of all of that... Uh, Satan is going to be finally defeated. Yes. And it talks about, uh, you know, the lake of fire um, where the beast, the false prophet, are destroyed there. You know, Babylon has been defeated. But finally, Satan is going to be defeated. And there will be a final judgment where all people are called to God's throne and the righteous are vindicated and the wicked are punished forever. 
And so it gives way to the final famous vision of the new heavens and the new earth yeah. in Revelation 21, which again is just this mashup of like all of this imagery of God's people through the ages. And mm-hmm. it's a beautiful final victory picture. Death is no more. Um, it's almost like a wedding as well. Uh, you can see that was foreshadowed back in like chapter 19. The wedding is coming and now the bride has come. And so it's a it's a mixture of images. It's a, it's a new heavens and new earth. It's a new creation. It's also a city that's pictured and there's some specific dimensions of the city, but it's also a bride and her husband. And so yeah. again, it's it's all very symbolic and we're not, I think, supposed to press any of the details too literally, but the idea is God is with his people finally and forever and evil is defeated finally and forever. And so in chapter 22 on that line, it ties all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis with a river and a tree of life. I mean, how did God start all of this? But by making man and woman and putting them in a garden and just wanting to be with them and just wanting to dwell with them. Mm -hmm. But then the serpent got in. And sin entered into the world, and God drove them out of that garden. And you remember those cherubim that are stationed, you know, there, and they they can't come back in. It all comes full circle in the book of Revelation, because now that the Satan or Satan and the serpent has been defeated, God can dwell with His people again. And so, chapter twenty-two highlights the the river and the tree of life that we now have because of the Lamb that was slain. That's right. And man, you go back to Genesis 1 through 3 and you look at all of the connections to Revelation and particularly here at the end, it's amazing. I've heard it said before that the Bible begins and ends in a garden. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool to see just how the Bible comes full circle. This is a very appropriate final book of the Bible because it ties together not just the story of Jesus, but the story of creation and God from page one all the way here to the end. And I just want to read these last words uh, of Revelation, the beginning of Revelation 22, but kind of the closing part of the vision. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree refer the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is beautiful. Uh, that is the glorious final future that this book looks forward to. Now again, he kind of zooms back in uh, at the end and says, okay, here's a conclusion uh, starting in Revelation 22, 6, um, where John is going to have a few more things to say about this is a lot of the things that this book has talked about are coming very soon in this generation. And so we need to be ready for that. Um, he's told again not to worship angels here at the end, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but as you think about this, um, it, the book ends with an invitation in Uh, verse 16 and 17, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. 
Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation ends on a very personal note that this is not just an academic exercise of you know literature interpretation, but this is a personal invitation to come to Jesus, to be part of his victory and part of his suffering in the meantime, but to finally live with him forever in the kind of world that God wanted to make from the beginning, to fulfill our purpose as a human being. Mm-hmm. Come, actually quench your thirst yes. in the water of life. So it's just beautiful to see how this final invitation is that Jesus wants to dwell, not just with everybody, but with me. Right. And as twenty verse 20 of this letter ends, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Amen. But Jesus is coming quickly. <laughs> and are we going to be ready for that? Will we accept this invitation to be a part of Jesus before he comes? And that... I believe is a a beautiful way to conclude the entire Bible that you have got to come to Jesus. And uh, I know we've mentioned this in other podcasts, but if you need help doing that, if you want to know more about how to do that, we would love for you to reach out to us and and tell us that we want to help everyone to come to the Lord Jesus because he is going to come like a thief in the night or we could lose our life at any moment. Are we ready to meet Jesus and meet God in judgment? Like we've been talking about in this episode. Yes. So Revelation, uh, certainly a challenging book, but wow, what a grand finale uh, to the story of Scripture. And it contains elements of almost every part of the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, all put together, um, but all pointing to Jesus and his final victory yep. and an invitation to come to him. Amen. So Lord willing, so that as obviously there, that wraps it up. If you turn the page from Revelation 22, you'll get to maybe a concordance in your Bible. So that concludes the New Testament. But we're going to release the recordings from the HBG Bible Talks event that we had back in April with Tim Bunting. And he did a series on how we got the Bible. So we will release those episodes um, now so that everyone can enjoy those and listen to those. And so we hope those will be good for your resources. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, uh, pick a book, or if you have Bible questions, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on local studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks.